Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Race is once again the source of major headline stories. Recent Supreme Court decisions, gerrymandering in a number of states, mass shootings, police shootings. And in When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Era, his new book from the University of California Press, Rob Eshman examines the effects of online racism on communities of color and society and the unexpected ways that digital technologies can enable innovative everyday tools of anti-racist resistance. He joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. In what ways has online communication changed the expressions of racism? Well, since the uh, the end of the Jim Crow era, when, you know, with the victories of the classic civil rights movement, racism has become illegal. It's illegal to discriminate. And as, you know, discrimination became illegal, overt racist language kind of went out of style that that, you know, racism didn't go away. But but people could not be uh, racist in your face without getting in trouble with HR or without being uh, shunned socially and online. You know, um, what what happened is that because online communication allows people to either be anonymous or to just feel like um, there's a disconnect between their online actions and the you know real world consequences that that, you know, we see increased hostility, not just in conversations about race, but 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 across the board. And then when it comes to talking about race online, things can get ugly really quickly where people feel the freedom to express the type of open racism that they they don't feel like they can express at school or at work and that what this does is is it is a shock to the system when we're used to encountering you know um, a, a quiet type of microaggression in, in in terms of the ways that we experience racism on a day-to-day basis to see the the open and angry hate online um, could really change the way that, that we uh, understand how racism is working so it bridges the gap between virtual and face-to-face experience Experiences? You know, I would say that that um, some people don't feel like their online experiences are connected to their face to face experiences. And um, one of the things I do in my book is I, um, you know, I, I, I have a case study of a college campus where and this is just one of the chapters where, you know, there was an online website where students could post anonymous messages. And so you had to be a student in order to make these posts and you had to submit to a moderator. But then you, no one had names attached to their posts. And this website turned into just a, you know, ugly uh, hate messages being thrown around that, that students talked about looking as if it was something that would happen before the civil rights movement, but, but not now. And the, uh, when I think about the connection between the digital and the face-to-face, this is really a, a website that, 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 that um, kind of proved a more close connection than, than what we experience on a day-to-day basis. So if you think about, you know, just going to a news site and seeing comments that can be racist, you can, um, you know, people may make a assumptions about where those uh, um, comments are coming from. They say, oh, this is someone who's a member of the KKK. This isn't someone I I am friends with. This isn't someone that I go to school with. I'm assuming that they live in a different world where they think this type of thing is okay. But right by looking at this case study of where, no, these are peers at a, you know, liberal university that are are speaking as if they were members of the KKK. Hmm. 
And so I think examples like this show that there's less of a distance between what happens online and what happens in person than we may think. And that is a, a lot of what I explore in the book is, okay, we understand that things online may be different, but what does that really mean? What are the consequences for then how we understand and experience racism? Uh, and, and, and of course, fight racism in face-to-face situations. So the internet has power as an organizing tool, even in, in places like that school you were talking about? It does. It does. And, and, and what I do in the book is I, I really I, I, I tell a story that that first, right, I'm, I'm looking at how our experiences with racism have changed because of technology and online communication. But the story doesn't stop there. Right. The most interesting pieces of what I found are the ways that despite, you know, being in online settings where racism may be a li- may feel a little bit more violent and in your face than it does in person. The young students of color don't back down and they They really are using digital tools to resist racism in new and exciting ways. And so in terms of, uh, you know, uh, um, kind of digital communication being an online, uh, an organizing tool, you know, there are different ways to think about this. One of the things I, I like to explore in the book is that not, not just, right. I think we've, we've heard of the, the big large scale organizing like black lives matter or say her name where, um, folks online are, are using, you know, Twitter and other online tools to really, um, you know, uh, um, c- capture the the national, international imagination and attention and really uh, um, facilitate large scale acts of organizing in person. Right. People hit in the streets in June 2020. Um, right. And, and, and that that's part of the organizing that we see. One thing that I like to focus on are the are the types of organizers are responding to racism that may not make the news that they may not be the the large scale events but they're um, they, they've become a part of our everyday lives and in, in the, in the small ways that racism is challenged and you know even if it you know you may right you may be challenging a microaggression but um, but what you're doing is you're stopping the reproduction of racism now you've included a number of personal stories and you begin with the first times you played video games how long ago was that and what happened Ooh, you're asking me to age myself saying how long ago it was. I think, um, well, you know, I, I opened the book with a story that the first time I was called the N-word was the first time I played online video games. And so this was my freshman year in college. How uh, did they even th- know that you were an African-American? Your name doesn't look, well, your name looks German. Yeah, well, you know, I was actually playing under a username. And so my username was Galactic Hair, also not something that would let people know my racial identity. But it was, you know, just by my voice. I said, hey, what's up, guys? And the next thing I know, they told me your name should be Galactic N-Word. Um, and so it was immediate and it was something that, that was unexpected. And the the cousins that I was with, I was playing video games at their house. Before I even started, they told me this is what happens every time. And I just did not believe them. I did not believe that they would could get called the n-word as often as they were saying they did while playing video games online and so really that experience for me um it 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 challenged my worldview and i you know this is a video game that i played a lot on campus and when i went back to campus i was at a predominantly white school Um, i would look at my white friends who played this video game online and just wonder to myself if so many people that i interacted with online we're using these this language. I wondered if, if any of my friends were using that language too. Did and you so find that, out? That began from, what's that? Did you find out that I did not find out? That I, some of no, your I friends not. might be doing this. 
I did not. No, I did not find out. I didn't start asking people if they use the N word. I did. Um, I did have another experience where um, we were listening to a rap song that had the N word in it. And, you know, everybody's rapping along. And then when it came to the N word, they kind of skipped over the word and glanced at me out of the corners of their eyes. And, and I stopped the music and I asked them, right. Hey, do you all use this word when I'm not around? And some said yes. And some said no. And so that doesn't tell me whether or not they're using it um, when they're playing video games. But I think that it did tell me that, um, that, you know, that, 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 Sometimes white folks may use different language when you're not around versus when you're there um, in, in, in their face. And, and, and so that is something that, you know, um, I, I see as being uh, almost a metaphor for the, uh, you know, the the. Um, in the book, when we think about like, what is the connection between what happens online and what happens in the real world? The, the part of what I do that is unique in this book is that I use data sources, both from online and in-person sources. And so I have interviews with students all across the country. And then I have data, millions of tweets um, over a decade, looking at trends in online uh, um, communication and, 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 and using, you know, keyword searches. And then I have, you know, quality analysis of, of samples of tweets and then a survey, right? And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm combining these different data sources in order to try to have a, a robust conversation about the, the, the ways that online communication impacts us on a day-to-day basis. You mentioned rap and the N-word uh, pops up a lot there. Uh, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood in Brooklyn, and the only times I heard the N-word was when one of the local kids was dissing uh, another one. And when you say local kids, are you talking about like a a black person to another black person? Yeah, black kids were calling each other the N-word. White people never did. So, um, you know, there's another factor there. As I said, it's also... Uh, pops up a lot in rap songs. So yeah, yeah. So we have so, a double you know, standard I, here. Is that? Uh, can I ask about that? Yeah, you can ask about that. Okay. Do is that was that the question? Standard? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a double standard? I mean, I wouldn't use it, but it's okay if uh, a black kid uses it. Yeah. I, so uh, so my understanding of this is that there is a different meaning when a black kid uses it versus when a white person uses it. And I, um, um, that that the way we think about that is that this is a word that was invented to keep black people in their place to, uh, you know, to communicate inferiority, to create a different class of of person it was created to be an insult but the way that it's used in hip-hop now is not an insult this is not a black person insulting another black person Um, this is the the word being turned to a term of endearment the word being used to refer to a a friend uh, um, you know a a homie somebody who you're close with or even just to refer to uh, individuals who may or may not be black sometimes right so the, the the term is used in many different ways by different people um, and and I think that there's also a differentiation between using the word with the N-I-G-G-A, um, which is more informal and playful versus N-I-G-G-E-R, which is the, um, you know, kind of the, the full on racial slur. Um, and and yes, I do. I, like, I, I don't know that I would call it a double standard. And so the best explanation of this that I've heard comes from Ta-Nehisi Coates, where he says that if um, if his wife calls him honey, 
he thinks about that differently than if a random person on the street calls him honey. So it's the same word that carries a different meaning depending on who it is that's saying it. And so I think that when black people use the word that you do not have implied that this is a word that is being used to put you in a, uh, uh, you know, to, to put you in place as being an inferior human being or being less than human. Well, they're both but, variants of the word Negro which is an acceptable word, although nobody uses that word much anymore either. Any, uh, you don't. Yeah, hear yeah. I, th- I think times have changed, and, and you know, different words go out of style, and that's something that um, you know, words have power. And when, 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 you know, I think that, that marginalized communities have the right to put the world on notice when they um, are, you know, um, want want to be referred to a different way. And those things may change over time. And the fact that they do change over time is not indicative of it being, you know, kind of a, a meaningless change. It is indicative of our recognizing that words have power and being, you know, being responsive to people who say that they are hurt by words being used in a certain way. You say that online communication has changed the expressions of racism. In what ways other than when kids are playing video games? And is it often subtle? Yeah, yeah. So... um I, mean, I think that the kids playing video games is just one example. And that's actually, I don't study video games in the book. I just, you know, kind of start with this story from my own personal experience and how that, 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 that created some questions in my mind about what is this online, you know, a phenomenon mean for the real world. Um, but, you know, I think that, that from social media to comments on sites like you, YouTube or news sites, or even online forums that white supremacists use to recruit and to spread their message of hate that we see lots of spaces online where racism is more overt. Um, can that right now, the second part of your question I asked, can it also be more subtle? Yes, it can. But one thing I found is that even more subtle expressions of racism online are easier to identify. And right, part of the the reason that right, like when we think about microaggressions that happen on a day to day basis, these are you know subtle racial slights that may not be um, overt enough to be considered you know racism with a capital R, but are still uh, hurtful for folks of color. Uh, they're difficult to respond to because we don't always know that it's racist. People may have the question in their head: Was that racism? Did he mean something else than what he really said? I'm not sure. But online, you have a community where people are able to collaborate and make a decision like yes. This is problematic. Yes, that was hurtful. Yes, that was racist. And here's why. And what that means is that even subtle expressions of racism online may be more likely to be challenged and called out than our subtle expressions of racism in face-to-face situations where people feel uh, more, you know, pressured to respond or or, or more pressures to not respond. Um, and then also where they have less access to immediate support that would make them feel comfortable, um, you know, challenging and responding to racism in those ways. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Lodge is Rob Eshman, E-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. His book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age, from the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, it doesn't have to be a, a hostile phrase like the N-word, but it can be something like you people. That's right. That's right. But even... Well, uh, why do you yes. people do this? Or when you people do that, isn't that's accusative. 
it is it is accusative and that's the type of thing that can be um overt or subtle depending on the on you know on the context that i think if someone were to say you people do this that would that would typically be seen as being overt racism that you are making an open generalization about race that is uh personalized and seems like it has some some venom behind it um but then a, a more subtle you know kind of a, a way of using that term would be saying something like oh hey the statistics say that black people are more likely to be uh, to c- do criminal acts. And so it's not racist for me to be scared when I see a black person. So that would be a subtle expression of racism that is that is, um, you know, relying on a on a false stereotype to um, to justify individual level discrimination. And I think what I'm saying is that that online, that one, people are more like more comfortable expressing open racism, saying things like you people, because they don't think that they can get in trouble for those things. And two, that people are more likely to challenge either open or subtle expressions of racism because they do so in a context where they have support, where they have people who other people who can comment on the same uh, um, statement and, and agree like, yes, this is racist. Here is why it is racist, where they can take their time to figure out how to respond and find a link and include the link as evidence in, the, in their posts as they respond. And that all these things, you know, um, empower uh, folks of color, marginalized groups who have historically felt like they, they, they do not have the power. They do not have the ability to challenge racism when it hits them um, every day where they are, whether that's work or in a social setting or at school. So has online communication changed the ways expressions of and resistance to racism are made at individual and, and structural levels? Absolutely. Yes. And so in many of the ways that I'm talking about that we see, um, you know, we, we see racism becoming more in your face. And what that does is it wakes people up. It can it can cause people who thought that racism was not a very serious problem in society can cause them to rethink that and, and, and realize and see, oh, this is where racism lives. Um, and then it also um, um, right, we see that, that, that people feel empowered being able to respond to racism online. They feel more uh, capable of doing that online than they do in person for some of the reasons I've discussed, like a, di- a, a different power dynamic that they don't feel like they're in immediate physical danger. So they have the the ability to type out a response or they feel like they have more friends who have their back because they're not the only person of color in a classroom when this you know racist microaggression comes up. So absolutely, it is changing the dynamics and the ways that, that we think about experiencing racism and then and then responding to racism. In preparing this book, haven't you analyzed many social media posts of the past decades? I've read millions, millions. You're saying that you've read millions? No, no, no. They say you have analyzed millions. Oh, yes, yes. So what I do in the, in the last chapter is I I look at some keywords um, and I trace their usage on Twitter over the past decade um, or, or over 10 years between um, 2011 and 2021. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm looking for trends and changes in how people use certain terms um, from terms that describe racism to, uh, you know, to terms that describe anti-racist projects like reparations or, or Juneteenth. And, 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 and what, what we're seeing is, is, you know, 
big changes in how people are talking about race. And I think when we, we see on the news that critical race theory is being banned and people don't want books about diversity in their schools, that I, I think that this is a pendulum swing away from what we've seen, which is, you know, online communication really bringing academic or activist terms that describe racism to the mainstream where the world is taking note of how racism is being talked about how racism is being described and i think again i think that we're in a society where many people underestimate how powerful racism continues to be and the more we talk about these things the more that we we give words and we are able to describe you know with with precision what racism looks like the more people understand oh i thought we were done with this problem but we're not the more people jump on the racism uh the anti-racism bandwagon if you will and i don't mean that term negatively i I mean that people who who legitimately did not think racism was a big deal finding out through social media, oh, it is, and then deciding that they want to be part of the fight to end racism. And I think this is, right, that these trends that I that I show and data of millions of tweets over a 10-year period are, uh, you know, part of what is scaring conservatives into feeling like they need to ban these ideas from being shared and taught in schools. Um, and so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a scary thing, but it also is something that, you know, tells us that that we've been doing something right, that they feel uh, uh, the, the racists feel threatened by the study and the, you know, the highlighting of racism in different contexts. Isn't it regional to a large degree? Obviously, uh, the resistance yes. to critical race theory is bigger in the South and parts of the Midwest. And uh, I don't think it's an issue in the Northeast or in California or the or the many of the western states. Yeah, you know, I think that you're right in terms of the states who I mean there are a large number of states who have been passing legislation but you're right that that, that seems to be places um that are republican controlled um where where we see those changes taking place but that does not mean that that um, those are the only places that that racism lives. I think right this Supreme Court decision about affirmative action this is something that that affects the entire nation um and I think that there are other ways Harvard that racism in, in Massachusetts, right? Okay. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, and I think a lot of universities are going to try and find ways to circumvent that ruling. Um, and I don't think that that battle is done. But I think that, that you know, on, on one hand, that this is something that was expected when we have such a big conservative uh, majority um, in the Supreme Court that, that, you know, from Roe v. Wade, we were just kind of waiting to see how far back are they going to roll um, these changes where how many how many of our advancements that we've made over the past decade are going to be done away with because of the Supreme Court. Uh, But I also think that these changes uh, reflect one of the things I talk about, which is the ways that racism has been masked. That, uh, you know, affirmative action was passed in a time when no one questioned whether black people experience racism that the open in your face racism was so recent that no one could, you know, could, could rightly say, Oh, black people don't experience racism anymore. Whereas today that lots of people believe that black folks don't experience racism anymore because they see Obama as president. How can there be racism when the president is black? 
because they see a black billionaire. How can you say that racism is real when Oprah has been so successful? And what's happened is that the ways that racism continues the oppression of black people have been hidden for so long that many people don't think that it's real. And that is part of our fight is exposing and naming the ways that racism continues to, you know, um, create racial inequality, inequality in outcomes, inequality in access to resources and quality education and jobs. And, and, and you know, that folks believing that that inequality is behind us is one of the things that empowers them to feel like they can take away the types of policies that were designed to combat that inequality. Is Clarence Thomas an anomaly? Um, you know, Clarence Thomas, uh, you, you know, I think that, that, that um, there's a lot going on with that man. I don't think he's the only black conservative in the world. Um, I think that that, you know, that, that there's a no, you um, see, you uh, see black people uh, in the in the crowds cheering on Donald Trump. That's right. That's that's right. And, uh, you know, um, one way we can explain that is internalized racism. Um, I think that that, you know, some some surveys have shown that upwards of 40 percent of black folks blame black people in poverty for their situation. So oftentimes, even among right, like I think that, that in general, black folks have a have a more robust understanding of racism and what racial inequality looks like than white folks. That just by being on the receiving end of racism, we tend to understand it more, but a high percentage of black folks do not, right? Like uh, when they, when they make it out of a, of a, you know, a rough situation, they see that as being due to their own, uh, hustle and drive and, and and their own work ethic and their own values. And so when they see people who do not succeed in the same way, they may judge them and think that that's because of uh, internal deficiencies or, or bad choices and not because of a system that is set up for them to fail. And so I don't, I think that, that, that Clarence Thomas, um, it, you know, is, um, you know, he's somebody who, you know, it makes me sad to, to, to see him making the decisions that he's making, but he is not alone in terms of black folks who do not have a full understanding of how racism operates. And, and um, you know, the, 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 there certainly are. There's a lower percentage of black folks voting for Trump, but there still were some. Um, and that's something that, that, you know, we have to recognize that, that you know, being um, a person of color does not automatically make one a political ally or make one a, an anti Oops, are you there? Oh, yes. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Something happened. Uh, I was going to ask you, don't targets of racial microaggressions often report feeling pressured to remain silent in, in the face of uh, these infractions? Absolutely. The, the, the research so says how does that, that the tend to be interpreted by the perpetrators or, or by bystanders? Yeah, yeah. So the research says that the most common way to respond to microaggressions is to not respond. And what happens when we don't respond is that the people who are there, the people, whether it's the perpetrator or whether it's a witness, they feel like that incident is okay. If if every time someone commits a microaggression, no one says anything, when do they begin to learn that what they said was wrong or was hurtful? And they don't. 
And I think that that is uh, right. That, that that's part of the problem uh, with silence in the face of microaggressions is that we allow the ideas that are behind those microaggressions to be reproduced without um, w- 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 without any kind of resistance. And so that's why challenging racism interpersonally can be so powerful that we're stopping the reproduction of racism. That we're you know if we think about microaggressions as kind of a scaffolding that upholds racist ideas on a larger scale, that we're stopping the the construction of more scaffolding to uphold racism and we're tearing down you know some you know the you know because we if you think about racism as a structural phenomena this is about life chances not just about personal interpersonal insults but by stopping racism on an interpersonal level, we are breaking down the, the myths that empower racism on a structural level. You interviewed students of color around the country. Was where they lived uh, a factor? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I conducted interviews in five different cities: Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Boston, and Atlanta. And I did try, and uh, I was intentional about that sampling strategy to want to have um, folks from different places um, around the country. I think I started the study in New Chicago, in in uh, university in Chicago, um, and then I, um, um, you know wanted to interview folks at different places to make sure that what I was finding was not um, unique to that first school. Um, And so I I did not find huge differences across campuses. There were some differences. There were differences in, in, um, you know, percentages of of students of color at different schools, which which I think impacted the type of conversation students were having. But by and large, many of the big trends that I talk about, and, and including the ways that students think about online resistance, the ways that they experience racism online um, held steady across the different uh, research sites. In what ways did microaggressions have an impact on their health and educational experiences? Uh, you know, I think that they hurt their educational experiences. They um, students who who were you know talked about their experiences with microaggressions. They see these things as being negatives um, in their experience. Um, in terms of their effects on health, that in you know and and you know there's decades of research, and then in my own survey, we found that both online and face to face microaggressions predict um, higher rates or uh, you know more symptoms of anxiety and depression, higher rates of of stress and that these are things that, you know, that can have, um, you know, negative consequences on folks' health and mental health. Um, and so definitely, you know, uh, experiencing racism, whether it's overt or, or, or subtle, can uh, have neg- negative consequences for your health. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Talking with Rob Eshman, Eshman, E-S-C-H-M-A-N-N, about his book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Era, published by the University of California Press. You're currently working at Columbia University? That's right. That's right. I've been at Columbia for two years now. Uh, We'll get into that in a little while, but I want to talk about the police. The police are expected to be colorblind, and yet we regularly see 
police cell phone footage of officers killing unarmed black people, in some cases even black officers. Yeah, and yeah, that, I and think that, that continues despite oh. what happens after uh, damaging leaked messages and damaging footages are revealed. Yeah, that's very true. I think that um, you know when we when we look at the police that this is the this is police violence. This is something that has you know um, come to the national international media's attention in the past years. Um, you know, um, in large part starting with Ferguson and and organizing there. Um, but it's not it's not a problem that was new. When we look back at the Black Panther Party. This is a group that was started um, that they would follow police around to make sure that they were not engaging in police violence. So before there were cell phones, you know, this is something that, that happened all the time without there being any evidence. And it's the type of thing that, you know, I, I remember having conversations with white folks who just could not imagine police not being there to, to protect them. And then also realizing that black, for black folks that, you know, um, a high percentage of us, we, we know people. Um, who have been uh, hurt by police, and it's not rare to know to know about those types of to, of actions. What's new now is that the world gets the, a chance to see what has been happening all along, um, and so I think that you know that there's a you know that this is a this is a complex story of why police engage in acts of violence, right? That you have uh, um, some ways of thinking about this is that police originate. Um, as you know, anti-slave as, as slave patrols, and so from the beginning, police, you know, their job was to was to you know, uh, um, kind of uh, um, uh, um, you know, harm black folks. I think that um, you know, right now, we, 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 there's evidence of you know when the when stop and frisk in New York, there's evidence that that precincts in black and brown neighborhoods are given you know higher quotas of how many people need to be stopped. I mean, tickets need to be given when you're in a black or, 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 or Latin community, um, you know, and I think that that uh, there's this 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 narrative of police officers being in danger and that justifying, um, you know, violence and force. Um, and so, it, you know, it's a it's a sad thing. It's something that, that should make us angry when we see examples. I think I, I just I had a, a friend post on her Instagram stories earlier today, this video of, a you know, elderly black man who was being handcuffed and then his partner was filming. And then we see an elderly black woman get slammed to the ground with a knee on her neck. And right. The, right. These are unarmed people. What, what is it that's happening? Why is it that society is, a, <clears throat> is allowing it to happen? Um, and, and, you know, and, and again, part of it is society doesn't know that it's happening. Um, I, I saw a, um, you know, a researcher, um, to a study of the effects of police violence on uh, health and mental health outcomes. But they did not have race as a variable in the data set. And when I asked why they didn't have race as a variable, it's because the police department didn't give it to them. And they weren't able to get this th that data. So if we don't look for the data, then how, how do we find out how big of a problem it is? And so I think this is the issue, is that apart from things going viral, that, that you know, policies allow for police forces to not always share data on race. So we can't catch them being racist if they don't have to share data on race. This is right when you see Obama, um, you know, engaged in the, right, like uh, um, some of his efforts when he was president were about 
you know, getting nationwide data around race and policing, investigating what, you know, racism and policing. And then Trump ended ended that, you know, kind of federal mandate of those types of, of reporting. And so, right. So again, um, yes. Yeah, so, so, so right. So that, that this is, this is a huge problem. This is not the only um, mode of anti-black racism, but is one that is particularly, you know, devastating when we think about state sponsored actors, state sponsored officials, who are engaging in acts of violence towards black folks without the the ability for us to, um, you know, you know, uh, um, um, resist, right. That, that, that you, that, that you can't defend yourself and then the state doesn't do anything to stop it from happening again. And it's a really disturbing situation. Um, and it's confusing to me how, you know, good people can see this and, and, and still be on the side of, Oh, I, you know, I, I, support police and I don't, um, you know, kind of see these actions as being a problem. One of the thing, I, one of the things I think is difficult for folks is recognizing that the acts of police violence are not situations where you just have a bad apple, but no, these are, these, these are apples that are a fruit of the tree that are standard. And, and what's rare is to catch them in the act, but then this is what's happening all the time. And so what needs to be done um, in terms of policy to reimagine police in a world where the, you know, policing is not working as, as it is currently, um, you know, uh, um, um, designed. Cell phones are really changing. Uh, before we continue this conversation with Rob Eshman, I need to take just a few moments to remind you that if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. Um, to do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give in the number 2, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950. Uh, but don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And uh, let's return to um, my guests. Uh, you mentioned the Ferguson uprising. Didn't you start working this project before the Ferguson uprisings in 2014 and before Donald Trump was elected? Did they, did. they push you into working harder on the book? They did not push me into working harder on the book. I think I was I was already invested, but it's um, you know, um, but but they are things that changed the you know the the nature of the questions that I was asking. So yes, I started the project in 2013, um, and and talking with folks about the differences between how they experienced and responded to racism online versus in person. And really, my goal there was to understand how right like the, that leading theories of racism talk about racism we experience as being subtle. Um, is being hidden behind colorblindness, not not colorblindness, not being open in your face. Um, and and what I was seeing is that online things are more overt, and I wanted to understand the impact that was having on folks of color. How has the social um, media landscape changed over those years from twenty thirteen to today? That's ten years. 
Yeah, yeah, that's ten years. I, I would say that at the beginning of the study, that I was I was talking with with folks who mainly discussed their online communication around race is, is taking place on blogs and on Facebook, um, and I think that now, right, and, and so it was it was before the Twitter explosion, where Twitter was seen as the being a central place for organized resistance, and I was also not studying big broad hashtags. I was more thinking about interpersonal. Uh, interactions online between people who know each other uh, face-to-face, but the way that they talk about talk to each other online is different than how they talk to each other in face-to-face settings. And so absolutely things have changed. And I, and, and I think Black Lives Matter and the organizing, you know, the movement for Black Lives more broadly um, has, has really changed the national converse, consciousness change the national conversation about race. And that's something that I tried to account for um, as it happened, as I changed the questions that I was asking. And also with Trump, again, that we see the type of ugly, you know, more open racism that we see online. Um, we saw Trump using in some of his speeches. And so this right. That also changed the way that, that, that people were thinking about racism is that that Trump, you know, kind of more brash style caused more people to view him as racist than they would other conservatives who support the same policies, but have a different way of, of speaking a different, you know, different mannerisms. But it really, uh, you know, kind of brought more attention to racism and helped more people understand what racism looks like. So absolutely. Those are things that, you know, that 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 kind of change the direction of the study and that, that um, allowed me to, um, you know, to, to really do work that, that um, is not, you know, like I, I, I don't, it, it was started in 2013, but it continued on, um, you know, for another eight years. And so it was a long time before I finished the study and I kept adding more pieces. And so as the world changed, you know, the, the, the research has to too. Otherwise you end up talking about something in the past, as opposed to being able to tell, you know, a more comprehensive and contemporary story. You have a chapter on stereotype threat. What's that? Yeah. So stereotype threat is not, I don't have a full chapter on stereotype threat, but, but I talk about stereotype threat in a chapter where I discuss the ways that racism has been masked or hidden and the ways that researchers and scholars and activists have tried to identify what that racism looks like. So stereotype threat refers to when people are told of a stereotype that uh, um, they are less likely, they're, they're more likely to, um, you know, perform badly on the area, in the area that that stereotype um, is about. And so this is not just race, but it's also, you know, gender. So for example, if you tell a group of women, you have two classrooms of women about to take a math test. If you tell one group, hey, we know that your math scores are going to be lower since you're women, don't worry about it. And then the other group, you don't tell that to. The group that was told their math scores are going to be lower, their scores are lower. And it's the, the idea of a stereo, right, being primed with a stereotype reduces performance. And so um, um, that, that is what stereotype is. It's been tested with a variety of samples over a long period of time at this point. Um, and the idea is that when we're, when we are made to be when we are when we are made aware of the negative ways that people think about us that that then affects how we um, perform and that's something that can you know it's one of the mechanisms through which minor right what we would call minor experiences with racism or microaggressions or stereotypes can have a major impact on people's lives lives when they you know when their uh, performance is is hurt unknowingly. 
This book is also a personal narrative. What are some of the things that you've experienced in this regard? Yeah, you know, does it matter that you've moved to New York? Are things different here? Um, um, wait one one second. Um, so you know, I think I do share a lot of stories, and when I when I share stories and I write personal narratives, what I'm doing is I'm trying to illustrate a point to them. And so some of this is about explaining my personal experience with, with racism, or you know, with, with, with different interactions that um, that cause me to think differently about the world. Um, and sometimes I'm sharing hopeful stories. So over you know, overall, I think that I right, I'm in a place where. Do I still experience racism and microaggressions? Yes, I do. But I'm also, um, you know, I, I'm someone who is highly educated, who, right, I, I, you know, I have a, I keep a campus ID with me all the time. And so, right, there have been times where I've been on campus and I've been carded by public safety or other really? university officials. At Columbia. And, no, no, not at Columbia, oh. but right. But no, 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 not at Columbia. Um, and, and in those situations, right, I can use the car to kind of show, hey, I'm, I'm meant to be here. And it's a problem that that has has happened to me. Um, but it is something that, you know, when you are protected by being, you know, middle class or upper middle class, that 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 sometimes you can be insulated from uh, um, some effects of racism. So, you know, so so the the, you know, the, the, the point of my using personal stories is not uh it, right it, like like it, it's always with a purpose when i when i start sharing personal stories um but i'm not right like on a day-to-day basis at columbia you know i don't get followed around campus um you know i think that that i have experienced microaggressions and, and there's nowhere where you or where microaggressions are, are non-existent but then um you know the, the 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 longer i'm alive the more i um, become an expert in and being able to cope with and respond to those those types of things. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm, I would not say that I have noticed a big difference in, and, you know, I, I was a professor at Boston university for four years before coming to Columbia. And I have not noticed a, 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 you know, a change between those environments. So this is not the type of thing where I'm trying to, you know, rank the cities that I've lived in, in terms of, you know, what, what experiences with race look like in those places. Aren't you part of the inaugural race and racism cluster group at Columbia University? What is its mission? Yes. Yeah, so this is a group where, um, you know, folks who, who study race and racism have been recruited to Columbia. I believe that its origins um, have to do with the 2020 uprisings. And, and I think a number of universities around the country saw that as being a call to action and wanted to, you know, to do something to be part of the change. And so I think that I, you know, I'm at Columbia with a, with a great group of colleagues who also um, study racism in ways that we can dismantle racism. Are there ways that digital technologies can enable innovative everyday tools of anti-racist resistance? Absolutely. And in, in many of the ways that I've been talking about. So from the big organizing efforts to the everyday um, experiences of folks being more capable of responding to and challenging racism um, to, you know, people sharing articles online about, uh, the, you know, that expose the ways that racism work and, 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 and um, you know, educate people about ways that they can work against racism. So absolutely, I think the digital tools are an important part of, of how people can learn about what racism looks like and how they can stand up against it. One way is that we have cameras in our film, in our phones, and 
we see things now. We have access to to uh, things. We witness things that we wouldn't have witnessed in the past. It would have been that other person's word against ours. Yeah, that's right. And it's 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 kind of sad when you think about it, that in order for people to believe that racism exists, they have to see proof of it. Otherwise, right, they don't believe um, our stories about racism. They need to see it themselves. And I think that that is the, you know, a, a sad reality um, that that that, you know, people don't trust the word of marginalized groups who experience oppression and they need to see the proof, um, for themselves. So that is, that, that is, that. And, and, you know, this is something that, that lots of black folks are not pleased when they see these types of videos online, that it can ha have a negative effect on people to see black pain or black death. Um, and so it's like, this is something that we can acknowledge that, that on one hand that we don't like when these things are being shared because they do harm. But on the other hand, when they are shared, they are waking people up to the problems of racism or they are creating, you know, um, leading to there being consequences for, for people who engage in acts of racism that would have gotten away with it were it not for that, you know, that, that public, you know, unmasking of, of racism. You say your next project will involve developing a virtual reality based educational tool to help people to learn the best ways to respond to racism and microaggressions in real time. Um, that doesn't sound all that easy to do. No, no, it hasn't been easy, but I'll tell you what, it's been a lot of fun. I, um, you know, I, I have been a, um, you know, an amateur filmmaker for a long time. I'm, I, you know, almost every year I do, um, a film festival with my kids where we make a short film, um, to get screened in a movie theater as part of the 48 hour film project. And, you know, in the past couple of years, I have started taking classes. I received a grant, the career development grant for, to create this intervention. And I worked with some great filmmakers and we created a short film filmed in 360 degrees or virtual reality. Um, and you know, that, that, that this is a film that depicts it's, it's, it's from a research project where the scenarios that take place in the film come out of actual student experiences with racism. And the, the film depicts, you know, different ways of responding to racism and the causes and consequences of those different strategies. And it has multiple endings to kind of show, you know, how things go when you're silent versus when you're not, there are multiple, perspectives so you see the same scenario from the perspective of the person being microaggressed and then the microaggressor and then a bystander um, and so you know something I'm really excited about it's in post-production now um, the, you know composer just finished the music and and what we're going to be doing is testing its effects and, and seeing whether you know um, witnessing racism you know has a different effect on people's physiological responses when they they also witness resistance. Well, we have uh, an election coming up soon, and uh, uh, the, the polls indicate the public isn't 100 percent where you might think it would be on issues of, of color and race. Uh, why do you think that is? Oh, what uh, specifically are you referring well, for to? For example, the response to the Supreme Court decision on uh, college admissions, it turned out— um, uh, it, 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 only a, a minimal majority uh, has been critical. 
Yeah, well, that that does not surprise me. I think that that rugged individualism is a, is you know central to standard American ideals and notions of freedom. And so I think again that that many people do not believe racism is a serious problem anymore. And so when they think about affirmative action, they don't see a fix for racism; they see an unearned step up. And it's easier for people to recognize the ways they're marginalized than it is to recognize the ways that they're privileged. And this is right. This is an example of folks not understanding what white privilege looks like and going after the wrong thing and trying to, uh, uh, right. Right. And, and calling it, uh, uh, racial inequality. And so it does not surprise me at all because I think the standard way of thinking, um, about, uh, um, inequality is in individual terms and that most people don't have the language or the capacity to think about structural injustices. And so that's why it's part of our jobs as educators or as activists, as, you know, as researchers to expose the ways that the mechanisms of racism. And the more we do that, the more we can help people understand what, you know, um, how racism works, how privilege works and the policies needed to undo that ugliness both his, you know, the legacies of historical policies and then also contemporary policies today. So it does not surprise me at all that people are, are on board with this. Um, you know, um, it, it, it does sadden me to see us make this step backward. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's unfortunately not surprising. I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. I hope we haven't left anything out. No, I appreciate you having me. This has been a great conversation. I've been talking with Ron Eshman about his book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Era, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you. And it's Rob Eshman. Thank you so much. R Rob Eshman. What did I say, Ron? I'm sorry. Yes, that's all right. It happens all the time at coffee shops. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to Reggie Johnson, my audio engineer, for all the important work they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, uh, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on a uh, iTunes and anywhere else you can get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you during these tough times. We are really going through a rough economic patch, and we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give to WBAI. Give the number to WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lobby right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, When the Hood Comes Off, by Rob Eshman. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member 
for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. Become a BAI buddy as long as you wish. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll come through right now because we really do need your support. We're the only station in the New York metropolitan area that's 100% listener-sponsored. And your donation is tax-deductible. And we hope that you can join us again next week. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then. 